Hear the word of God. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all, as anyone had need. So, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father, for your word. I pray that it would instruct our hearts where they need to be corrected, that correction would be brought, and where they need to be... Uh, uh, strengthened and encouraged that you would do that good work. Father, may we uh, be strengthened so that we would be a better fit to glorify your name. I pray that you would anoint my lips and enable me to faithfully preach, and may that word be quickened in the hearts to these people. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, we've come to a a portion of the book of Acts that many churches look back to uh, with a, a great deal of longing and uh, with a, a sense of idealism in their hearts. You know, if only we could get back to the early church and the things that they engaged in, if only we could uh, have the kind of vitality that that church had, if only we could have the numbers of people coming to faith that they had uh, happening back then. But before you wish that too much, let me give you a little bit of a, a feeling of what was going on uh, in this setting. Verse 41 says, 3,000 people came to faith. And then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. In chapter 4, verse 4, it says that just a couple days later, there were 5,000 heads of households uh, who were saved. Now, uh, let's just uh, assume that these were not an additional 5,000. You could take it different ways, but this is the total number of heads of households. You still have a growth within just a handful of days uh, from 500 people. And if you count wives and, uh, let's say, an average of three children per household, that's from 500 to 20,000 uh, people in less than a week. That's a pile of people. And uh, you may not see a problem with that, but if you were an officer back in those days who was supposed to take care of those people, you'd see a big problem. It makes me tired to even think about it. Uh, you know, it's uh, a, a tiring thing to even have uh, fewer of those added uh, weekly. The workload for those apostles must have been overwhelming, but it just gets more. Week by week, there are multitudes of people who are coming to Christ in the book of Acts. It's sort of like what's uh, happening right now in India and in China. I was talking with uh, one leader who said that in the early years, his uh, uh, leadership was an absolute disaster. In the last 20 years, one uh, leader said he was woefully untrained uh, he found churches just coming into existence month after month as he would walk from town to town and begin spreading the gospel. And people would come to faith, maybe 
15, 30, some places maybe 60 people, and in two to three, maybe a week's time, maybe a month's time. And he would teach them everything that he knew, and then he would go on to another town, and the same thing would happen there. And when maybe somewhere between 20 and 30,000 people had come to Christ, it dawned on him, you know, I really shouldn't abandon the people I've talked to before. I need to go back and teach them all the things that I've learned. And he's been feverishly, while he's walking from town to town, studying the scriptures, trying to figure out what it is he's supposed to teach. So he went back to those original towns that he had been preaching at, and the problem that he found was uh, there weren't just you know, 30 and 50 and 60 people in those towns. There were a couple hundred and 300 and 600 people in some cases. And they were all begging him to teach. And he was just feeling absolutely overwhelmed. What in the world do I do with all of these people? And so he took some young people who showed uh, signs of uh, leadership and he took them with him and was training them. He said he was bumbling along, trying to train them in uh, the things that uh, he was doing. Uh, And in 20 years, it ended up that he was responsible for a loosely networked organization of over one million people. Now, there were five other pastors who had the same thing happen. Those are the biggest uh, church movements in, in China. And I wondered, what would happen if Reformed people planted churches there? And I discovered there actually are Reformed uh, uh, churches, uh, groups there. And they were experiencing similar results and similar frustrations. One leader from a Reformed group felt called to the Lord to not just preach to the Han people, which is the majority people, but to go to the minorities and... That was kind of a discouraging prospect, but um, when this leader went to those minorities and began uh, uh, preaching in a cross-cultural type of a context, began seeing numerous people coming uh, to Christ, and in 10 years, there was over 1,000 churches that were planted, you know, all of them between 30 and 60 uh, people, some of them 100 uh, people in them. That's a pile of people. Uh, that um, uh, were coming to Christ. And this is one of the reasons why these leaders have said, we are not ready. They're begging for worldview teaching, leadership teaching, theological teaching uh, in, those, um, in those countries. Let me just give you one story that I've shared with some of you from India. And there's numerous stories along these lines that I'm sure I'll be able to bring back after October, but... Uh, there was this one Dalit who was uh, the lowest class uh, in India who ran across a Bible, had never met a Christian, but in reading the Bible became converted and was so excited about the things that he was learning there, he was reading it to, that's all he did. He just read the Bible to relatives, to friends, to neighbors, and they were becoming Christians. Now listen to this. Before he even knew what a church was, before he'd even met a Christian, He ended up, because they ran out of room in one meeting, he ended up having seven churches, most of which were almost a thousand members in them. And then a Christian ran across him and started discipling him and training him and what it means to be a Christian. All he was doing was reading the scripture. He didn't know, you know, how to teach these people. And such growth almost always leads to financial challenges, heresy challenges, organizational challenges and persecution. There is fiery persecution in India and in China. 
And you see exactly the same persecution in the first chapters here of the book of Acts because the leadership is really intimidated. Satan's intimidated. You know, he sees the growth impacting his kingdom. You see huge financial problems in this chapter. You see it in chapter 4. You see enormous organizational problems in chapter 6. And they realize, we need new leaders. And so they, they uh, ordain some deacons. And then in chapter 8, they're ordaining evangelists. And then in, by time of chapter 11... You've got numerous elders all over the place, so somewhere in between there, they've established elders in place. Chapter 5 shows moral problems creeping into the church. Chapter 8 shows heresy problems. And so it's no wonder that many, many churches fell away from the faith within 35 years of Acts chapter 2. In fact, Christ prophesied it. Uh, It's called the Great Apostasy. He prophesied within that generation that there would be a great turning away from the faith, and much of what the apostles were writing in their epistles was written to correct the problems that had crept into the church. In fact, uh, new cults had been developing already in the first century. In the book of 1 John, it mentions, it says, they went out from us that it might be made manifest that they were never of us. So here are these people. They're claiming to be Christians. They're outside the church. There were cults already in the first century. It was an amazing thing. And so in one sense, we can say, yes, what's happening in Acts chapter 2 is exciting. It is thrilling. Yes, what's happening in India and China is exciting. It is very thrilling. But the challenges are enormous, and it's not a lot of fun. Some of these leaders that we met with, they don't see their families for months at a time. And it's not wise. In fact, some of them expressed to us they felt like they would be betraying Christ if they went back to their families when there's so much work. And we tried to encourage them that, no, it's as you're ministering to your families, you're glorifying Christ. Some of them only getting three and four hours sleep a night. Uh, uh, None of them had taken any time off. uh, And they were encouraged. And this one person said, you know, uh, it, because the, one of the leaders that uh, uh, had been going with us had in the past encouraged them, encouraged them. And this one leader was so excited. He said, you know, last year I took two days off. He was so excited that he was obeying the Scripture. And I think, wow, these guys are just workaholics. And um, so I don't... Uh, I want you to have a little bit of perspective on the, those glory days. I don't want to take away from the glory. There was glory there. There was a powerful outpouring of the Holy Spirit... But I would be quite content with 10 converts a week. Uh, well, even one convert a week, right? Not 100 or, or 3,000. Now, I'd submit to whatever the Lord gave. And if he gave 3,000 men, I would be excited. I would be thrilled. But uh, I would wonder, boy, what kind of problems are going to be uh, happening along with that? And we just submit to what God providentially prepares before us. But with that as a context, let's go, go through this passage uh, phrase by phrase. Verse 41 Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. Peter didn't have to talk reluctant people into being converted. They gladly received his word. And we ought not to be pressuring people into becoming Christians, trying to arm twist, you know, high-pressure salesmanship or anything like that, because if God's Spirit is at work in their hearts, God's Spirit's going to make them ready, desirous of coming, thrilled that there are answers to the problems that they see in their lives. They will ask. And so our job is to present the Scripture. The Spirit's job is to change their hearts and to make them ready. Now, this gives a balance. That phrase, I think, gives a wonderful balance between two extremes that you see on the mission field. The one extreme 
is where you see people who say, you know, there's so many problems with individuals falling away that we're going to put people on a one-year trial, test run, as it were, before we allow them to be baptized and to come into membership. This is the way our mission agency in Ethiopia worked. Uh, You could not come into the church until you had been a Christian and demonstrated yourself for a year. Why? Because they were so fearful of unholiness coming into the church. They were so fearful of um, uh, people uh, falling uh, away. And yet, uh, you don't see that in the book of Acts. Throughout the book of Acts, people are baptized as soon as they are converted. There is no testing period because, after all, salvation is by faith, not by works, right? And that's one of the reasons why we don't uh, have people go through a long membership class and try to weed people out. You know, we look for profession of faith. Now, there's another extreme that goes to the other direction. Uh, what I call easy believism, where people are not given any reasons not to believe. Okay? Jesus didn't engage in that kind of evangelism. If anything, he tried to talk people out of believing, out of being Christian. He said, are you sure you want to follow after me? Anyone who wants to be my disciple must take up his cross and follow me, which means he's going to go to his crucifixion, right? He has to deny himself. He has to repent of his sins. He has to lead a holy life. This is the message. This is what Christianity is about. And you receive salvation by faith, but you know full well, once you are saved, this is the kind of life that you are going to be living. Now, after you receive a message like that, anybody who repents and believes uh, is probably regenerate, has God's Spirit working in their hearts. And we see this in verse 40. This is the message of Peter. With many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from, their, from this perverse generation. So that, that's the balance here. They're baptized, they come into the church based on profession of faith, but they don't come before they've heard what Christianity is about. There is a, a, a message that's given that shows that they must count the cost of following after Christ. Now, we've already dealt with the second clause in verse 41, but look at verse 42. It says, And they continued steadfastly, and there's four things that they continue steadfastly in. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. Literally, it's in the fellowship. It's talking about a corporate fellowship there. In the breaking of bread and in, literally, it's the prayers. So it's not private prayers, even though they probably were steadfast in that too, but it's the corporate prayers. So there's a the uh, before that in the in the Greek. So those are the the four things that they were steadfast in. And if those four are maintained, a church is much less likely to fall away during times of phenomenal growth. But any period of history, those four are essential for the health of a church. Now, first comes doctrine. And it's not by accident that he puts doctrine first here. In the epistles, you find that Paul consistently lays out the doctrine and then he lays out the practice that flows from that doctrine. Our experience must be judged and evaluated by the doctrine, not our doctrine judged and evaluated based upon our experience. In fact, a lot of the strange cults and the strange movements in China uh, could have been avoided if this principle had been followed. There is one group uh, there called the Criers. And they're not quite a cult, but they have a lot of cult-like activities. The leader 
when he came to Christ, just went through agony. He spent days crying and weeping and agonizing. And so he said, well, that's how I got saved, and you're not saved if you don't go through the exact same experiences that I have had. And so their churches are bedlam. Man, crying all the time. We didn't associate with them, but this is what I've heard from those guys. They're called the criers. And there's a lot of other bizarre behavior that goes on in various churches there because some strong... Uh, uh, winsome uh, personality has had an experience and he expects everybody else to have exactly the same experiences. We say, no, doctrine drives everything. And our experience needs to uh, flow out of that doctrine, not the reverse. So he says here that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Well, I do not think that 15 to 20 minutes on Sunday once a week is continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. I'm not sure we even continue steadfastly. We might barely get in that category. But if you were to uh, read theology books every day, and if you were to go to the, some of the midweek uh, meetings and the prayer meetings, and you'd have personal devotions, and you got a healthy dose of the Word of God on Sunday morning, you just might be somewhere in that category of continuing steadfastly. But they considered the, uh, the preaching of doctrine, the teaching of doctrine, to be very, very important. The second thing was fellowship, literally the fellowship, dealing with corporate fellowship. People who, Now, here's an interesting thing. People who love doctrine and doctrinal preaching frequently don't like fellowship. And people who love fellowship, they, you know, they just put up with doctrinal teaching. But the scripture says both of those have to go in hand in hand. They're both very important. Uh, the Apostle Paul said, get, get a load of how important he considers it. He says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. 1 John 3 14. So just because fellowship is second in order, second in priority, does not mean it's unimportant. He says it's critically important. You know that you have passed from death to life because you have a love for the brethren. In fact, Christ said it's so important. This is how we're going to impact the world. He says, how do we engage in evangelism? He says, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In Matthew 5, uh, Jesus said that this has to take priority over communion. Uh, let me read that. It says, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and the gift would have been a sacrifice that would be given on the altar, and after the sacrifice, they would engage in their communion meal. That was the purpose of it, sacrifice, then communion. But he says, If you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So urgent was the importance of maintaining fellowship, they were to leave their gift at the altar there and get reconciled. Now, they didn't leave it there for a, a day or a week or a month and, and eventually come back to church. No, the idea of leaving the animal there is that they were going to get out, get reconciled, get right back there to the altar so they could sacrifice it and be a part of that communion meal. He's saying, now some people, they think, well, I better not go to church today because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not right. And the next week they don't go to church because they're not quite right. That's not the purpose. God says there needs to be an urgency where you actually bring your animal to the church. Well, not 
the animal to this church, but back in then, when they were sacrificing the animals, that's what you did. You brought it there because you're intending to worship that very day, but you're going off and you're getting reconciled right away. And so he says that's how important it is. A follower um, uh, of Jesus must uh, uh, have uh, fellowship as a priority. The third... Uh, word there is referring to the communion meal in the breaking of bread. Now notice that they were steadfast in the breaking of bread. It was constant. And so even though it's less priority than fellowship, he is indicating it is not unimportant. Now, in the New Testament times as well as in the Old Testament times, Communion wasn't just once a year. It wasn't four times a year, as some traditions have it. It wasn't uh, even just once a month. It was every time they came together. 1 Corinthians 11 uh, says that uh, whenever they uh, come together, they take the Lord's table. Let me give you a few examples. 1 Corinthians 11, when did they have communion? It says, when they come together, verse 11. When you come together as a church, verse 18. When you come together in one place, verse 20. When you come together, verse 33. It was part and parcel of every worship service. Verse 34 says, you come together for judgment. Why would they come together for judgment? Couldn't they have some coming together without the Lord's table? No, they come together for judgment because the Lord's table was always a part of the, those meals. And they, when they partake wrongly of the Lord's table, it's for judgment. And so whenever they came, it was for judgment. Now that chapter reinforces there is absolutely no point in taking the Lord's table if you are out of fellowship with other believers and you're out of fellowship with the Lord. And so notice again the order of priority. It's doctrine first then fellowship, then the Lord's Supper, but they are steadfast in all three. They're all essential. None of them are options. Then comes prayers, and I mentioned earlier there's a the in front of it in the Greek. It's the prayers, so it's the prayers of the church corporately together. Your prayers are not even heard if you are out of fellowship with believers and not in communion with the Lord. But prayers, even though they are listed last, are not unimportant. All four are critically important to the church, and that's why he says they continued steadfastly in them. We simply will not succeed as a church if we are not a praying people, and so I would urge you to be a part of the corporate prayers of the church. Uh, look at the results of this steadfastness in verse 43. It says, Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. <clears throat> that first phrase, then fear came upon every soul. Uh, we live in a day and age when it seems like there is not much fear of God in the church. No awe at His holy majesty. He is a holy God. We are sinners. And there ought to be fear. But you know, even the, the holy angels, they fear God. They don't have any sin. So that's not the issue, but when they come before God's presence, it indicates they hide their face with their wings from His awesome presence, and yet how frequently do we just flippantly ignore God's commands in the Scripture? I come before Him without any reverence whatsoever. Justify our sins before a holy God. It indicates that we have no fear of God before our eyes. That's what it indicates. Now, a synonym in the Scripture for a person who is sanctified or who is mature is one who fears the Lord. That's what it means to be sanctified, what it means to be uh, holy and mature. Now, um, 
That motivates us to uh, avoid evil, to pursue holiness, but it does not mean that we have terror of the Lord or that we're timid of approaching his presence. And let me try to illustrate how boldness can be compatible with um, the fear of the Lord. Uh, in British Columbia, where I spent a number of years, there's a, uh, a phenomenal place. It takes a long time to get there, a lot of hiking, but it's called Skookumchuk Rapids. Have you ever been there, Mike? Skookumchuk Rapids is a narrow uh, inlet into a huge bay. And so whenever the tide changes, there's an enormous amount of water that goes through there. In fact, it goes through so rapidly that it can't keep up. And it's a, a literal wall of water that builds up. And then you see these huge whirlpools that will open up 50, 100 feet wide. The ground shakes. And you, even if you scream with a person next to you, he can't even hear you. It's just an incredible, incredible sight. And when you look at that, you stand in awe at what is going on, the power that you see before you. They warn you, don't even wade in that water ankle deep because it will sweep you off your feet. They said, don't get in the water, period. Now, I had absolutely no terror of that water. No timidity in watching it and going up to the bank. I was enjoying the sight that I was seeing, but it was because I was following the signs and I didn't get in. If I got in that water and started to swim, it would be sheer terror. Well, it's the same with our relationship to the Lord. We can approach Him boldly and we can also uh, have an incredible respect and joy overseeing His awesome power. But if we try to swim in the water, which means to disobey His, his um, commandments, either, either we're going to end up with terror or we're stupid. We have no fear of God before our eyes. It would be a stupid thing to swim in the Skookumchuk Rapids, and it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Let me tell you something. In Hebrews, it says even believers can fall into the hands of an angry God. Uh, later on in the book of Acts, he's going to miraculously use two examples, Ananias and Sapphira, strike them dead right on the spot to indicate to people that believers need to have the fear of the Lord. And it produced that. Immediately it says, they walked in the fear of God. And God didn't do that to indicate he's always going to do a miracle and smite people dead. He did one in the New Testament. He did one in the Old Testament at the beginning of that kingdom uh, with uh, Nadab and Abihu, the, the sons of uh, Aaron. He smote them dead to indicate, look, this is the kind of God that you are dealing with, and he who approaches God must reverence him. But what he's indicating by those two signs is God continues to deal with people, as Deuteronomy 28 says providentially, with blessings and with curses. If you want the blessing of the Lord, you must have the fear of the Lord before you. <clears throat> Interestingly, there is, uh, where there is a fear of the Lord, there's a corresponding boldness. Look at chapter 4 and verse 31. It says there, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness, with boldness. Look at verse 33 of that same chapter. It says, with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Well, that was a result of the fear of the Lord. And we see the same connection here. It was to these people who were filled with reverence and fear that it says God did many wonders and signs through the apostles. Notice the word then. 
It's the result of that steadfastness. Uh, in the Greek it is, and was born, or you could translate it, and was created, fear upon every soul, and was born, or and was created, wonders and signs through the apostles. The one is as sovereignly given as the other is. Just as we cannot produce miracles on our own, you know, on demand, and much as they claim that they can, charismatics can't uh, do miracles on demand, we cannot produce the fear of the Lord on demand either. Now, Pastor Glenn and I sure wish we could. Man, do we wish we could, but we can't. It's something that we say, we cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, unless you are the over-shepherd of our sheep, unless you bless our efforts, unless you quicken the word to their hearts, they're not going to have the fear of the Lord before their eyes. And so it's something that is sovereignly brought. But when you see the fear of the Lord in a congregation, it's an indication God's Spirit is at work and there's going to be tremendous things that are going to be forthcoming. Verse 44 says, Now all who believed were together and all, had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Now just as the extraordinary growth in India and in China has called for extraordinary sacrifices, this growth of the church also required extraordinary sacrifices. Let me just explain why it happened. Remember we saw this was the Feast of Pentecost. And what had happened is that hundreds of thousands of Jews from around the world had come to celebrate this feast. We don't know exactly the number. Uh, there are times where there were as many as uh, actually over a million people that came to Jerusalem from around the world, according to Josephus. We're not told here. But there are multitudes of people who are becoming believers over time. And when you went to a feast like this, if it was a one-week feast, you know, you might have money and provisions for two or three weeks, but if these people are having to be discipled over several weeks, all of a sudden, the church has a need unexpected that's going to require extra sacrifices because they're going to have to feed and uh, uh, keep these uh, 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 people in some kind of a building. <clears throat> and so... This is what was a financial challenge in chapter 2, and again you see it in, in chapter 4. <clears throat> and by the way, these were going to be people who would be beachheads that would enable the apostles uh, later on to plant churches much more easily. But in the meantime, they have to be discipled. Now, there are people who use this verse to try to prove Christian communism or Christian socialism. I hope in your minds that is as much of an oxymoron as saying Christian Satanism because socialism and communism are a demonic religion. They are not anything related whatsoever. And yet there are a lot of people out there that preach Christian socialism. So what I want to do, I want to give you nine contrasts from this passage with so-called Christian socialism. This is nothing like communism. First of all, communism forces people to share... Whereas this was voluntary. It flowed out of grace-filled hearts, love-filled hearts. So it was not forced. Second, communism insists that this situation should be forever. This is an economy that they want to set up, right? Whereas Acts makes clear this is a situation that lasted only for a short time until the problem was resolved. Third, socialism and communism uses the state as the vehicle for sharing, whereas this is using the church as the vehicle for sharing, distributing of the gifts. Fourth, socialism gets its money by tax, taxes, 
whereas this was private charity. Even the church didn't coerce it. They gave it freely, right? Fifth, communism believes that the state owns the property, whereas it's clear here that the individual owns the property, both before the sale and after the sale. It's the individual who owns it. And we're going to have more to say about this in chapter 4 uh, because that's another passage that people appeal to with Ananias and Sapphira and they say, see, they were struck down because uh, they didn't want to share all of their goods. They should have given it all. That is not the truth at all. They were judged because of their lying and because of theft because he makes it very clear until he gave the property, it belonged to him. But when he gave it, it was no longer his. And to keep it back was theft. And it was also lying. So that's why he was judged. But this chapter assumes private ownership, not state ownership. Sixth, communism doesn't liquidate the property to give it to others. No, they want to hang on to it, right? In perpetuity. The state owns the property and keeps it, whereas here the property is liquidated by the Christians and some other private individual buys the property from them. And so it doesn't even remotely resemble state ownership. It is capitalism at work. Now, Gary Norris speculates that, you know, uh, the, these guys knew that the property values would be uh, going way down once Rome circled and this was prophesied and everything. And so, boy, we ought to sell highs so we don't have to sell low later. Uh, it may have been in their minds. We're not told from the passage whether that's true or not. But it's very clear that this liquidation of property is totally contrary to state ownership of property. Seventh. Only basic needs were supplied. Look at verse 46. It's not cradle-to-grave care. Verse 46 says, So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Now, when believers lack food, you know, radical sacrifices are needed to make such food available. And so extra real estate was sold and given to help fund this extraordinary need. But there is nothing in this passage that indicates this is authorizing, um, you know, state, um, you know, sanctioned uh, social security or medicine or uh, Department of Housing or, you know, what are some of the other things that they uh, have out there, daycare centers. Uh, it's clear that even though they sold extra rental properties, later on in the book of Acts, we find even some of the 120 owning real estate, owning houses there in Jerusalem. For example, it says in Acts uh, 12, verse 12, that Mary, John's mother, uh, had a house large enough to accommodate a quite a large crowd, and so apparently uh, a fairly well-to-do house. So we're talking about people making sacrifices of extra things that they had in order to provide for basic necessities of food and shelter, not confiscation for cradle-to-grave welfare. Eighth, it was not a cure-all for, uh, for poverty, as many people make socialism out to be. In fact, Jerusalem became a, a financial burden for the other churches during the famine of chapter 11. This was to meet an immediate crisis need, but it was not intended as an economy that would be a cure-all uh, for, uh, for poverty. And socialism never cures poverty either. It just exacerbates it, right? Um, ninth, verse 45 says it was as anyone had need. Now, need is quite different from envy or want. I want what that guy has. Okay, it's quite different from that. And... Envy is 
is at the core of a socialistic or a communistic system. And so if anybody comes to you and say, oh yeah, the book of Acts teaches uh, communism, you've got nine points right there where you can turn it completely on its head and say, actually, this is one of the best passages to show that uh, uh, communism is bad, you know? This is the exact opposite of communism. This is free market charity, okay, that he is talking about, uh, very much so. So... Now, having dismissed communism, don't miss the fact that this virile Christianity was generous and sacrificial in its nature. They had such a close body life that they ministered to each other when God's kingdom called for such ministry. Everything we own should be at our, uh, our Father's disposal. And if we shut up our compassion to those who have need, you know, of of food and clothing, he says, how does the love of God dwell within us? There needs to be a willingness to share. Now, that does not mean that uh, we uh, indulge irresponsibility. They don't do that in India or in China. They certainly do not do that in the book of Acts. But there needs to be a radical Christianity that's willing to take the coat off our backs if another person has need and to share one with another. Now, one other characteristic to notice in this community was that it was filled with joy. It was not a dour, dry, and dusty group. It says they ate their food with gladness. And I think gladness and joy ought to be one of the foremost hallmarks of Christianity. We most glorify God when what? We most enjoy Him, right? We are called to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And the more we enjoy God, the more we glorify God. And the more we enjoy His good gifts, the more we glorify Him. The more we enjoy His creation, the more we glorify God. Now, the interesting thing about this, though, is that what they were having with gladness was not something spectacular and Uh, something, you know, scintillating and new and exciting. Uh, You can make even pagans glad in heart. If you give them a, you know, a new car, you give them, take them out to the French cafe, you know, do other exciting things. But he says here that they ate their food with gladness. And the word there is trophase. It just means basic nourishment. They're having gladness at the basics of life. And obviously, in the context, there wasn't a whole lot of extra that they had. They needed this money just to feed these people over these weeks. So they were uh, able to eat the simple basics of life with gladness. When a person is glad with the same old, same old, he can be glad over the basic, boring things of life, you know that something remarkable is going on. And that remarkable thing is the power of the Holy Spirit working within that. Uh, Psalm uh, 46.4 likens the Spirit to a river when it says, There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God. Is your home filled with gladness? That's God's purpose, is to fill you with His gladness. And if your home is not filled with gladness, and if your heart is not filled with gladness, you need to cry out to God. Restudy this passage and say, Lord, what is there that's missing? Read the whole uh, chapter uh, 2 of Acts and say, Lord, what is there missing in my life that I lack the gladness uh, that uh, these people had? 
It's my prayer that you would be able to say with David in Psalm 4, verse 7, You have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. Now, why was he saying it's more than when their grain and wine increased? It was because while he was writing this psalm, he was fleeing from Absalom, his son. Uh, And he did not have the kinds of things in his life that pagans are glad over. You know, the harvest, the, the, the parties that go on during that time. No, he had uh, some very painful things that were happening to him, even emotionally painful. And yet he was glad because he knew even if all of those things were taken away from him, God could not be taken from him. And it was God who made his heart glad. Later in this book, you're going to see Christians having the same gladness when they are beaten when they are imprisoned, when they are opposed. That is the heritage of all those who walk in the Spirit of God, and we cannot have it unless we walk in the Spirit of God. One of the most remarkable verses in Deuteronomy chapter 28, which, remember, that's the chapter that says, if you follow my covenant, here's all the blessings I'm going to pour out upon you, and if you don't follow my covenant, here's all the cursings I'm going to pour out upon you. But there's one verse in there that gives a reason for why God brings the curses. Verse 47 says, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart. It's not enough to serve the Lord and do it with drudgery. Okay, you know, I'll do it, but I sure don't feel like doing it. No, you, they were judged. It says here, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart. Gladness is a moral imperative for a believer. And you cannot say, well, if God would change my circumstances, I would be glad. No, the circumstances of David did not need changing. What he needed to have was the Spirit of God giving him that gladness. And that's what we need in our lives. Dry and dusty Christianity must be put off and exchanged for a spirit-filled life in which we can enjoy even the mundane things of eating the same breakfast we've eaten for the last three weeks, you know? Just enjoying it, having gladness before God that we're not burning in hell. It's all a matter of perspective. It really is. It'll help us to be content because... This gladness will chase away envy, it'll chase away covetousness, it'll give us contentment in every circumstance. So if you don't have that, please, I would urge you to study and restudy and pray this chapter through. Now, Acts 2 goes on to say that they ate their food with simplicity of heart. That word means sincerity, openness. It's a word that's derived from a word that means land that doesn't have rocks and bumps in it, okay? And... Apparently, it it has a reference to a transparency in our communication. Now, think about this. Verse 42 deals with the Lord's table, breaking bread in the Lord's table. Verse 46 refers to the love feasts that happened after the worship service. So, verse 42, breaking bread in the Lord's table. Verse 46, breaking bread in the love feasts after that meal. And this, too, is a very, very important part. These are the times when we can be open and transparent in our communication. It's not just important to come to communion on Sunday. It's important that we fellowship as a body of believers in our homes. And uh, that's one of the reasons why we encourage this all the time. Verse 47 continues with the words, praising God. Praise is another characteristic of a healthy Christianity. The reason God gave for disciplining Israel over and over again in the Old Testament was because they did what? They grumbled. They murmured. 
They were complaining about all of the hardships that God was bringing into their lives. They were not praising God. Praise should be on your lips when your life is smoothing, smoothly sailing along. And it should be upon your lips when everything's going wrong. Just like with Paul and Silas. They were beaten. Their backs were bleeding. What were they doing? Singing praises to God. It's a matter of perspective. Verse 47 goes on, and having favor with all the people. Now, some people think they aren't holy unless everybody hates them, unless they're being persecuted, right? In fact, some people go further and they aggravate the persecution by just being jerks. But I want you to notice that the average citizen liked what they saw. Now, certainly, they were being persecuted by the leadership, and you can see why. They were intimidated. But the average person, it says, having favor with all the people, the laity, there is something wrong with our Christianity if people are not attracted.